We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. we discussed in our intro I, I think this is something that morrison was really keen on trying to do showing really getting at the ugly side of racism that she she felt wasn't really being properly depicted in the books that were coming out at the time right and like also just the ways in which like racism does not just mean white people being awful to black people. Racism or the system of white supremacy also causes people to be awful to each other, even if they are the same race. And it leads to things like colorism, where the girl Maureen is so much more highly valued because she has very light skin, as opposed to Pecola, who has much darker skin, and causes Choli to lash out at the girl instead of the white men, like it turns people of the same race against each other. And I think that that's very crucial to know. Like we, like, I think it's very easy to just be like, ah, yes, racism is, is horrible white people being awful to people who aren't white. And it's like, no, racism is a system that like screws over everyone and can make everyone be awful to each other part of the trick of racism is turning people who should be united against each other and so i think that's a huge thing and racism is also like economies of love um again with pauline what you see with her and the white family which like is something that is still obviously not the same as the situation but uh still something today where you have especially like nannies coming from somewhere else and leaving their families behind to come work in the United States for white families. And, like, I just recently read an article about this, which I will get the name for, and uh, we will include in the description. It had some very candid interviews with women talking about how they felt like they could afford to love the white child or the white children they were caring for in a way that they couldn't afford to love their own children because they felt they had to be, like, harsher, stricter with them that... They didn't have, like, the same freedom to, like, be kind and soft and affectionate. They did with the white children they were with and honestly spent a lot more time with. And I think you see that, like, Pauline talks about, like, she doesn't, she has moments where, like, she doesn't know why she's like this with her children. She doesn't know why she's, you know, beating them. And it just kind of, like, happens and she can't stop herself. But you see her with the white child be, like, very warm and affectionate and loving. And the white child calls her Polly, where Pecola and uh, Sammy, her other kid, both call her Mrs. Breedlove, which I think really shows that. So it's like within this uh, racist economy, like Pauline doesn't have the like <laughs> emotional capacity to love and care for her family the same way. And she prioritizes putting all of her love and care into this white family. And that's like another huge thing of racism. <laughs> I think of The Help, which really glamorizes the <sighs> black made white child relationship and really just paints it as like, oh, isn't this adorable? Don't we all wish that we had a black maid in our lives? And that's like, ah, uh, and this book really, really shows the other side of that equation. Like, well, you know, this person has her own family that she's raising and specifically in, in Pauline's case, it, it like poisons her relationship with her own kids. Everything is just so much easier at the white family's home. Like it talks about just the practical things of like, there's always hot running water. There's food, enough food for months to last them. She's able to bake. Pauline is apparently a really good baker. And she she makes pies, and that actually leads to, to an incident with her, Pecola, and the white daughter of the family, where she makes this pie, and Pecola accidentally knocks it over, and Pauline hits Pecola and, like, her, calls her a bunch of nasty things, and then she turns to the white girl, who's crying, and is really comforting and tender and affectionate and loving and it's just this sharp 
contrast between the two that is really horrifying. And you can just see in that moment how Piccola is internalizing that. She sees this white girl. I can't remember if, if it's described that she has blue eyes, but it wouldn't surprise me if she does. Uh, she sees how the white girl is being treated by her own mom. How could you then not think, oh, if I was more white, then my mom would love me the same way she loves that girl. Getting to the heart of just the fallout from that kind of work and how that bleeds into the rest of her life and just turns her into this really bitter, horrible woman. I don't want this to come across as, as like shame on Mrs. Breedlove for being a bad mom. No, like obviously there there are mitigating circumstances that have led to this point. But I, I think there's Morrison brings a lot of humanity to these characters and to their tragedies. So it doesn't maybe this sort of contributes to the where it, it feels like misery porn, but it never feels like sort of glamorizing their suffering in any way. It's just pure suffering and it leads to more suffering. And it gets it's like that adage that's the the abused turns into the abuser. You know, when bad <laughs> happens to Pauline, she's going to turn around and extend that same bad <laughs> to her kids. And it just keeps spiraling down that way. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of I feel like I should address the misery point statement at this point. Now yeah, that, yeah. Now that we've talked about have... some of the misery in this book. <laughs> right. Just to like clarify what I mean, because I think that like, like I said, I really liked obviously the Pauline section and that like it's miserable it's it's miserable but I think that the crucial difference for me is that you do get kind of I mean even the Choli section I think is not mystery porn Uh in this weird way because do you get more of a there's more levels if that makes sense explain (laughs) like imagine misery is a dial that you can mm. turn from one to ten. Mm-hmm. And there are levels in their lives. It moves on that dial, and yes, it spends a lot of time at ten. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of time also not at ten. That's kind of a crucial difference for me. Um, Pacola's life, and I would say this is probably why most of the Pacola sections are my least favorite parts of the book. Mm-hmm. Most of Pacola's life is at ten. There is absolutely nothing else. Even like... The interesting thing is, so we get a couple of scenes with her and Frida and Claudia. When she's staying at their house, they seem to be very, like, have pretty affectionate feelings for her. But we, we're not seeing, I mean, we never fully see in Piccola's perspective, and we can talk about how the narrative works in a bit, but you're very much in those scenes in Claudia's perspective, as opposed to sort of the, like, more removed third person that we get in some of the other Piccola scenes. And so even those moments where you're like, maybe she's not at 10 right now. You're not as close to her. So you're not really, it's, you're not sure. And you don't really get to feel it. Most of the scenes that are Piccola scenes, she is at 10. It is a miserable time. I think the only scene where she isn't is when she's spending time with the prostitutes upstairs. But otherwise, she is at 10 all the way. Um, Her very last scene, she's breaking the dial. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, and I will say I do really like this the dialogue scene of her and her imaginary friend when she's had the breakdown. I think that's a great scene. But like pretty much all of the other Piccola scenes are just like there's a reason the animal deaths happen in the Piccola scenes. It's because it's just it feels like misery porn. It's like how many bad things can we do to Piccola? Here you go. All of them. <laughs> I'm not saying that people can't live like really miserable lives where the dial is at 10 a lot of the time, but I think that it stops hitting in an impactful way and starts just feeling bad. Like if we had a scene where Piccola, I don't know, like parents, especially abusers, go through cycles a lot of times where they're better and worse. What if there was a scene where, like, after the fire totally gets it together for, like, a second and things are a little bit better in the house? And then that makes it worse, of course, when it all comes tumbling back down. And then I feel like that would have hit more for mm. me, like, after that. But no, it's it's just, it's 10 all the time. And I think that that's why the 
character sketches worked better for me because it did they did have those moments of highs and lows and that's why claudia's narration worked better for me because mm. we can talk about claudia and how much i think claudia as a scout analog actually is is pretty good i think they've got the same sort of like they don't really understand much about the world, but they think they do. Uh-huh. And they're both very impetuous and ready to beat people up if they have to. And they're not like these pretty perfect children in this really great way. And I really enjoyed Claudia as a character. It's just that Pacola is the saddest, <laughs> most wretched possible child you could have. And I think that's where I feel most of like the de- debutness of the book. I, one of the best like writing tips I ever got is like I was writing a, a like short play and my writing teacher was like, look, you've got like the mom has cancer. They've got no money. The sister is wanted for arrest. Like, blah, blah, blah. She's like, it's too much. You got to pick and choose. You can't just dump the whole bucket in, you know? Yeah. And I think about that a lot. I'm like, you got to, if you want to make the bad things hit, you do have to think carefully about how you're going to use them. And I think Bacola just feels like the misery bucket. I'm glad you brought up the prostitutes. Pervert. Because that's actually one of my gripes with this book is that we are introduced to these three characters. Uh, Mary, who's also, uh, I I don't know how to pronounce this, the Mad- Magino line. And then China and Poland, I think, are the names of the other prostitutes. We get these like this really vibrant scene with them all chatting and, and being sassy and trash talking each other. One of my favorite lines, one of the greatest insults known to all mankind is said in this scene. One of the prostitutes says, you look like the north side of a southbound mule. Which is a great kind of insult because it, it it forces you to stop for a second and think about it. And then it's like, hey, wait a minute. But by then it's too late. They've walked off. They've they've dropped the mic. It's this really wonderful scene. And we really see Pecola like having fun and being treated well by these these women. Then we really never see them again. Uh, we We get moments with them. With Mr. Henry, which is kind of interesting in and of itself, because then we get Claudia's perspective of these prostitutes. Mm -hmm. They come off as very trashy, almost sinister, something, something's off and it's just very uncomfortable. I think it's a really cool narrative trick that uh, Morrison does because she does it for some other moments. Like there's a scene, Pacola talks about how she's overheard her parents having sex and how her mom doesn't make any noise. And it's horrible. It's clearly awful. It's clear that the mom doesn't want it. But then we see Pauline's perspective and she's also silent in that scene, but we see it's like for a very different reason. And she's actually very much enjoying herself. So we get moments like that. That's really cool contrast, but yeah, it sucks that we, it feels like the the book spends pretty significant amount of time building up these prostitute characters to then never really mention them again. But yeah, I think you're right about the the other character studies. The misery is kind of interspersed. There's obviously a lot of misery, but there's also a lot of joyful moments. Like Choli's uh, reason he's my favorite chapter is that like his moments feel so big and raw in this in this really fascinating way. And I'm just going to read the passage where he has his epiphany about God and the devil. So he's like at this park and there's a family and they have a big old watermelon that they're going to smash on a rock to open up and like give to people. So it starts this way. The father of the family lifted the melon high over his head. His big arms looked taller than the trees to Choli, and the melon blotted out the sun. Tall, head forward, eyes fastened on a rock, his arms higher than the pines, his hands holding a melon bigger than the sun, he paused an instant to get his bearing and secure his aim. Watching the figure etched against the bright blue sky, Choli felt goose pimples popping along his arms and neck. He wondered if God looked like that. No. God was a nice old white man with long white hair, flowing white beard, and little blue eyes that looked sad when people died and mean when they were bad. It must be the devil who looks like that. 
holding the world in his hands, ready to dash it to the ground and spill the red guts so, N-words, could eat the sweet, warm insides. If the devil did look like that, Choli preferred him. He never felt anything thinking about God, but just the idea of the devil excited him. And now the strong black devil was blotting out the sun and getting ready to split open the world. Oh, <laughs> that last line. There are so many moments like that with the other characters other than Piccola. And I think maybe part of the issue with it is that with the characters of Choli and Pauline and others, it really felt like Morrison was just trying to tell a story and sort of allowed any kind of symbolism or significance or analysis to just naturally and organically come in as it may. With Piccola, it really felt like she had a message and she was going to do her darndest to say it through Piccola. And so it doesn't really connect in the same way because eventually you're just like, oh my God, this poor girl. And you just go numb. But with like Choli and Pauline, you've seen the peaks that they've reached. With Piccola, it doesn't feel like that. So when it comes at the end of the book, when it gets really at the heart of the matter of like how the townspeople talk about Piccola in this really unfeeling way and how Claudia expresses a wish that that people express some kind of empathy, any kind of empathy, that kind of falls flat because it's just like, well, yeah, but didn't you just read the same book? Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what did Piccola have yeah. going for her? <laughs> I mean, yeah, just to kind of like, I do think there's also just some like not realistic elements of, of Piccola's story in that like, okay, again, she stays with Claudia and Frida and their family for a little while. Claudia and Frida seem like good with her. She gets her period while she's there, and their their mom, Claudia and Frida's mom, uh, ends up taking care of her after that and being quite affectionate with her because, like, she knows that Piccola's, like, alarmed and doesn't know what's happening with her body, and so why are... Why doesn't Piccola spend more time with their family? Why does she not become closer with Claudia and Frida? We see them continue to interact, but it doesn't seem like they're good friends. It just seems like they continue to interact. It, it, that feels like I'm I'm a little bit weirded out that like we open with her staying with them if that was going to have pretty much zero effect on anything. Your first real thing you get in Piccola's head is that she's imagining herself disappearing. And of course she's able to imagine all of herself disappearing except for her eyes because symbolism. <laughs> and like... Piccola doesn't have a lot of interiority beyond her desire to be beautiful and the fact that she's unhappy. I'm not 100% sure there is anything else to her, which I think is, again, a part of the issue. Because the interesting thing, too, I'm going to keep bringing up the Pauline thing because I like Pauline. Um, By like, I mean, I enjoy her as a character, <laughs> not that she's like a good person. Just to clarify. But, like, it's uh. interesting because Pauline also goes through this phase of wanting to be beautiful. Um, like, she goes to see the movies a lot for a while after they first moved to Ohio. And she talks about one time she did her hair. I think, like, Greta Garbo. I can't remember. There, there are multiple famous white yeah. movie actresses that, that get referenced throughout the book. Shirley Temple's another one, but that's mostly for the kids. Anyway. Yes, but she she goes to, I think, a Greta Garbo movie. I could be wrong about who it is, but I think it's Greta Garbo. And she does her hair just like Greta Garbo's. And she's feeling very pretty, you know, thinks she did a good job. And then she's sitting and watching this movie and one of her teeth just falls out. Because it had, like, rotted through. And she's like, why is this happening? I've always seen, like, you know, good care of my teeth. I've never, there were no signs of this, etc. But, like, the the tooth falls out and, like, that kind of makes her forces her to like fully give up on this idea of being beautiful is is really a moment of transformation for her so it's interesting that like she too was occupied with these ideas about white beauty and felt she was thwarted by her own body and i was interested that like 
I don't know, that never really gets tied in with Piccola, even though it's the same occupation. And there's, like you said, multiple characters thinking about standards of white beauty. In the beginning, Claudia is talking about how she hates Shirley Temple. Yeah. Um, And even though Frida and Piccola seem to really like Shirley Temple, and like this whole idea of like, Claudia's always given these white dolls for, I think, for, for Christmas or her birthday, I can't remember. Whatever. As presents, she's always given these white dolls. And she's like, I didn't want them. I just wanted to take them apart to figure out why other people wanted them. Uh And she talks about how, like, she moves from, like, this indifference, this kind of, she describes it as this terrible indifference to them, to then hating them. And then that implies that the next stage would be loving them, like, as a sort of, like, self-defense. So, like, there are other moments in the book that are dealing with the same occupations of the Piccola storyline. And so I do think that it's kind of a flaw that, like, there's not, like, I'm not talking about needing Claudia and Piccola to sit down and talk about, like, standards of white beauty. But, like, it does feel like they, these moments should connect more or that this might be a way to, or even, like, have Piccola talk to the prostitutes about beauty like i think the prostitutes have a very different idea about right because because mary they're prostitutes (laughs) well they're prostitutes but also mary is described as being overweight and very her her makeup is very garish like she's not traditionally beautiful that yeah that would have been a cool scene to have to have piccola talk out some of her anxieties with these prostitutes and get their perspective on beauty and what what that actually looks like from their perspective because otherwise in every other context it's like this very pure standard of beauty and what that means and i imagine that prostitutes are, probably have a more grounded perspective of what it actually means to be beautiful yeah I, I feel like they would. <laughs> and that would, that would give the prostitutes more narrative utility. Right, right. Although, you know what? Maybe the prostitutes just fully escaped from this narrative. Maybe that's mm. part of the point. These prostitutes cannot be contained by this narrative of misery because they've been like, f*** you. Yeah. We're doing our own thing. That's a fair point. <laughs> it would have been nice to see... It's interesting because, like you said, we don't really get to see Piccola's perspective as intimately as we do the other characters, especially when things happen to Piccola or things happen around Piccola. It's almost we never see it from her perspective. It's always from the other characters in that scene. But it would have been like cool to have seen her perspective when she got ice cream with Maureen. I mean, was that the first time she ever had ice? I don't know. Like, what was that experience? And the thing is, she's like, I did appreciate this because it felt very true. It's like a classic teenage thing of, I know she's not a teenager, but it it feels like a teenager thing of when people ask like, hey, how are you doing? She's like, I'm fine. You know, it's just like these very brief one word answers. And so we don't actually hear her until the very end of the book but yeah how did she feel about claudia and frida frida rescuing her from the boys right has she ever had someone rescue her from taunting before did she appreciate it what how why i have so many questions i don't know i feel like that would have been a big moment in piccola's life like that these girls were willing to like defend her even though she didn't have blue eyes like We see in that final scene that she's, like, really desperate for a friend. She keeps being like, don't leave me. And she keeps being concerned about them leaving her. Then, why? Why? (laughs) Claudia and Frida are right there. And Claudia and Frida, like, hike all the way up to where her mom's working to see her and talk to her. Although, to be fair, they are also trying to get alcohol. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's tied to a horrible thing that happens because it's like Frida has been Mr. Henry has touched her and he's been kicked out, uh, but she is worried that she has been ruined and will then become a prostitute. And Claudia has this great line where she's like, 
in her head thinking it through. It's like, well, you're not fat like Mary, so you can't possibly turn into a prostitute. But then they think like, oh, if we can get some alcohol, that'll like some, I don't know. It's just child logic and it's great. Kids are stupid. I think that I needed more of an explanation for why they didn't become friends. Mm -hmm. Why could not Claudia and Frida (laughs) help Piccolo turn the dial down to maybe a seven? That would have been nice. It's also like there's this theme that's presented very explicitly in the book about how everyone in the novel used Piccola as this this scapegoat or this target just to focus all of their anger and hurt and pain onto her. And the book is criticizing the characters for doing that. But the thing is, like, the book contributes to that feeling because we don't actually get to see Piccola as a character until the very end when she's lost her mind. Which at that point, is, I mean, it's too, it's, the book literally ends with the words, it's much, much, much too late. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but that's partly because you made it much, much, much too late. Like there, there were friends here that in a very organic way, like you were saying, that they totally would have bonded and become friends and it would have been great. But they don't because it just feels like the message that Morrison had to say uh, was more important than than that. Which it's a good point. It's a very good message Mm -hmm. to make. It's unfortunate that it comes at the expense of the story itself and especially this character. But we've referred to it multiple times now, but maybe this is the time to talk about the ending. Yeah. Can I... Is this a, I can't tell if I was meant to like understand this or not. So maybe this is just like a clarifying question on whether you read this the same way. But like, there's the, you know, friend she's talking to who responds. And then at the very end of the dialogue, the friend's like, I gotta leave. Um, is the friend the baby? (laughs) Is she talking to the baby and then the baby leaves because she loses it? Oh, was I meant to under... Okay, clearly you did not get that from the text. <laughs> no, I, I did not read it that way, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did, especially because it talks about earlier, Pauline talks about how she used to talk to her babies all the time when they were inside her. Right. And I was like, that's why the friend leaves. But people, let us know. <laughs> you read this book. <laughs> did you also read it this way? <laughs> Uh, the the second second person who could or could not be a baby. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing. It's really a like tragic scene, but Well it is it's just amusing to imagine that like there's an imaginary friend that is just a literal baby. Oh yeah, it's the it's the baby from Allie McBeal, the dancing baby. Oh, good check. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm gonna be serious now. Um. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're just talking about such serious topics. I think that's why, like, my brain's like some levity now. Yes. I too cannot live at dial ten all the time. Indeed. But yeah, so she she thinks she has blue eyes, and she thinks the reason why people are avoiding her is because she has blue eyes. And it's interesting because the, then she becomes preoccupied with do i have the bluest eyes and very like mirror mirror on the wall Mm -hmm. but like even though like she thinks she's realized her goal of like having blue eyes and she thinks she's made herself beautiful right in the eyes of other people there's still this preoccupation like they have to be the bluest or like she's nothing (laughs) yeah it never ends something this book does really well and it's Um, how it paints that when these desires to be wider, more blue-eyed or whatever are met, it is not actually a solution. Hello, everyone. Just to give you all a heads up, we will now be talking about the pedophilia of a character in relation to this topic. If you would prefer to skip this conversation, you can fast forward about three and a half minutes starting now. 
maybe even more so than than this scene is the previous chapter with Soped, where we get his whole backstory about how his family has really, in every sense, tried to whitewash their family and mm-hmm. and go for this kind of quote unquote pure form of racial identity. And purity is like a very important thing for Soped. He he talks about how it's very important for things not to be messy. He he really doesn't like bodily functions. And this it's it's suggested that this is what leads him to become a pedophile, because in his mind, it's little girls who are the purest bodies. And I think it's like, damn, Morrison just leveled the whole idea of racial purity or racial erasure in like this super brutal way that it's almost suggesting that the natural outcome for something like this is f***ing pedophilia. Although, <laughs> I will say there's some weird stuff in the soaphead section, like in terms of there's some comments about like he wasn't brave enough to be a homosexual, but that's what he like naturally was and stuff like that, which... Like, I agree that with everything you just said, and I think that's a really good reading. I will say, I think there's some stuff in there that yeah. I I would have taken out. And I think <laughs> muddies that message. Yeah. Because uh, it's implied that he would have gone after young boys if he was. Yeah. It, it's, it's also weird. just suggesting that, like, if you're homosexual, there's then a natural tendency to become a pedophile. Which is obviously not true, because, like, I get what she's getting at, and I think it's really a really powerful statement to make. It just kind of, unfortunately, there's, uh, I guess, some friendly fire in the process of that. Which, again, this book was written in, what, 1971 or something like that? So, yeah, published in 1970. So, like, I definitely read that as, like, ah, a product of the time this was written. Um, it reminded me a lot of like mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs, like he's right. not a true transsexual, blah blah blah, and that sort of mentality, which is always like very toxic and bad. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to since you were already talking about his pedophilia, I wanted to <laughs> dip in there with that side note. <laughs> I appreciate you coming in to set the record straight. Not to say that excuses it at all. It's still worth criticizing Morrison for it. In the same way that we like show some lenience to like C.S. Lewis for being sexist, <laughs> to, just to keep in mind that context. Going back to the scene with Piccola at the end, it's so refreshing because we finally get her voice in the first person, and we learn a lot of interesting things. Like apparently, she has deluded herself into thinking that uh, she actually wasn't raped. She was able to fight Choli off or whatever. And then it's also suggested that there was a second incident that happened where she presumably was raped again by Choli. And it's horrifying, but it's also fascinating to watch just to how the way her mind has to bend in on itself just to stay alive. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're told that she has been forced out of school People are uncomfortable around her, so they just avoid her and ignore her. I don't want to say it's nice that we finally get her. I don't know how to term it because it's just like it's it's all just terrible. But at least we hear her voice and and it's really compelling. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's just a really well written dialogue. Like she still has. I mean, obviously, she has a lot of neuroses because she's talking to either an invisible person or her baby and thinking it's real. She's also happier, it feels like. Mm-hmm. She has a friend. She has her blue eyes. And, you know, she talks about, um, she's talking about, like, Maureen again, which I thought was interesting that she comes up here. And she asks, like, her invisible friend, like, do you like Maureen? And the invisible friend's like, oh, she's all right. Eh. <laughs> and Nicole's like, oh, do you, would you want to be her friend? And... The invisible person's like, no. And Piccola's like, me either. Like, she now has, you know, she's anxious about this invisible friend leaving her. But 
she now has a friend that would choose her over Maureen, the very, like, pretty tough white girl that she envies. And so there is this weird sense that, like, despite everything in this delusion, she's a much happier person. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it's also, like, the first time where we actually hear her talk for an extended period of time yeah. and in, in sentences longer than a word or two. And we get it really get a sense of how she would interact with the rest of the world, which I think that the novel is saying, if only the rest of the world had opened itself up to her. But I think we are pretty ambivalent about that. It seems also like a failure of the novel to recognize the moments where that naturally would have occurred. So it's just a shame that we didn't get scenes earlier and or more discussion about Maureen from the start. I don't I don't know. I feel like there needed to have been some kind of falling out with the children. Cause like again, I'm I'm flipping through my pages. And in this dialogue, Cola says So okay, the person, the invisible friend is like, You were so unhappy before, I guess you didn't notice me before. And Nicola says, I guess you're right, and I was so lonely for friends. Mm. You had Claudia and Frida. <laughs> they were right there. That doesn't mean that we still can't be friends. Okay. Well, then here's to us being great friends. I can't! Well, I, I think you mentioned earlier talk, wanting to talk about Claudia and Frida's perspective in all of this. I don't know if you have any thoughts that we haven't already covered or if there's anything more you want to say about them. I think mostly just uh, like talking more narratively, structurally, and also thinking about this in terms of like we just did to Call Mockingbird and we are thinking of them as paired texts. So if Claudia's the scout and Frida's the gem, <laughs> and I think they play those roles very well, as you pointed out, we don't get nearly as much of them because the book is split into like four sections with chapters in there. Um, So it goes from starts with autumn, winter, spring, summer. And only the first part of each season is with Claudia and Frida. After that, it moves into other perspectives. And there's the question of the whole time of, is Claudia narrating these more like third person sections or is this an omniscient narrator? And there's also like moments in Pauline's section where it goes into italics and it seems like it's first person. And certainly that dialogue with Piccola and invisible person is another moment where it kind of breaks the narrative structure. But it's interesting going from the first-person-only perspective scout, and we talked about some of the limitations of that, that we don't get to see like these other perspectives of the Black people in, in Mayfield. Um, obviously, this allows us a lot more perspectives. We're able to get all of Trolley's backstory and Pauline's backstory and everything because we're moving outside of Claudia's perspective. But I did think it was an interesting choice to still center on these girls that are not on the inside of this it's not Piccola's narration even though the summary for this book literally makes it seem like it is Piccola's book mm -hmm. and that she's like the narrator she's not so I I did think it was just kind of interesting the way that it's it, we do get the outsider perspective and the ways in which that allows in the final section for this really impactful moment of Frida and Claudia overhearing the women of the town talking about Piccola and hearing the way they're talking about her. And that's really impactful. But it also, I was never <laughs> quite positive until then that like, especially because nothing really comes of Piccola's interactions with Claudia and Frida beyond them interacting. Mm -hmm. Why these characters, why this perspective how much they are aren't utilized because they're such a really small part of the book. And yet it's still the first person narration and potentially also the first person is narrating all of the third people. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I would say it's just a mess. The framing device is a mess. It doesn't really work for me when you really break it down. And I, like I said before, the second half of this book is much, much better than the first half, which is basically when Claudia and Frida disappear as characters. 
And I think it's interesting to see this more like in the bigger kind of the oeuvre of Toni Morrison, because then you get to a book Mm -hmm. like Jazz, where there is a first person narrator, kind of, who is pretending to be a third person narrate. And it's like this really interesting thing where you're constantly battling with the book to get a straight story yeah like in jazz the narrator literally will tell you something happens and then we'll be like no that's not what happens and we write it yeah it's fascinating it's so it's such a cool little moment and it kind of feels like this book is it's almost a precursor to that where we do get a first person narrator who honestly would serve better completely unnamed like we could really just excise all the Claudia and Frida Frida bits from this book and I think it would be a much better book like you said way back in the intro it's just interesting to see this book as an evolution obviously to see all the things that Toni Morrison has always done well that's borne out by this book because the things she does well she does f***ing well but then you see the sort of hiccups I guess where things don't quite work and you recognize, if you've read more Toni Morrison, you recognize those elements in the, in her other books. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is like a trial run for, for this thing that, that she experiments with later on. I guess the uh, question of would this serve as an adequate companion to To Kill a Mockingbird? And I think that you kind of have to frame that question, one, as just like com- completely outside of a school setting. And then also within a school setting. So I don't know. What what are yeah. your thoughts about? I think I know what your thoughts are. But <laughs> what what are your thoughts? I mean, certainly in terms of it discussing racism and how that affects the black community from the inside. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. I think that it, you know, does a- address a lot of the problems we brought up with To Kill a Mockingbird. It also like talks about class and issues within that the same way. So I think that there are there are certainly ways in which it serves as a good pairing. I do think though that the the overall preoccupation with specifically beauty forms like a kind of different narrative and like I'm not saying that like they're they're not good paired together, but I just felt like the there are many facets to racism, right? Right. And if this focuses in on one particular facet and has moments where it, you know, explores other ones, but like it's its focus feels very different than the focus of To Kill a Mockingbird. So I'm kind of mixed on it as as on them as paired texts, just outside the school setting. Within the school setting, I don't think this is really a book for children <laughs> under the age of 18. I mean, you can do it. Um, I was reading a very vastly inappropriate books for my age in mm. high school, but like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this in a school setting and giving it to kids if that makes sense. Like, obviously, like we should be talking about difficult topics with kids, but I think there are things in here that could be, if you were mandatory, like you mandatorily had to read this for school. Some of the topics in here are upsetting topics that some people just might not be able to deal with. And so mandating that for school feels bad. I, to answer the first part, I I think this is a really good companion piece because I think it really takes on the question of racism in a a much more head-on way and really focuses on the fallout of that. I hear your point about it focusing specifically on like the physical beauty aspect of racism and how that plays out. But I I still think that the focus on race and racism, it's a lot more complex and nuanced than To Kill a Mockingbird, which is saying something because I think that To Kill a Mockingbird approaches that issue with a lot of complexity and nuance. I just think this really ramps it up in a really intriguing way that's to compare it and contrast it. And especially because like in a lot of ways, this book is like a mirror to To Kill a Mockingbird where it focuses primarily on the black community and then white people kind of show up every now and then. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me, at least in my head, to, to pair the two. I think I'm with you on the question of school because I'm not sure if this is the best kind of book 
to give students, not to say if you give it to students that it's a bad decision. I th- I'm sure the discussion would be great. I just think that this book is so bleak. There is a risk of of people dismissing it as misery porn. It almost does the book a disservice to put it within a school setting, uh, specifically a high school setting, like in an academic setting where you're comparing it to other books about the black experience that were coming out at that time makes so much sense to do that Um, within a high school setting as you and I can attest to Morgan, we did not get a comprehensive education when it came to non-white authors. The idea of presenting this as the only book covering race is, it feels hazardous. And I think that's yeah. kind of borne out by the fact that, like, there have been so many pushes to ban this book that, like, if you were to assign a different Toni Morrison book, probably not jazz, that's probably too complicated for high schoolers, yeah. but like Song of Solomon, which is a fantastic book. And at least of the Toni Morrison that I've read, probably my favorite Toni Morrison overall. Nothing will ever beat the last chapter of jazz, but overall... <laughs> Song of Solomon takes the title. But honestly, really, Toni Morrison should be in high schools. Like, it is absolutely disrespectful that she is not. I mean, I've talked before about how I hate the term the great American novel. I'm more willing to apply a term like the great American novelist. And if I had to give that title to anybody, in my opinion, it would be Toni Morrison's. Take one of her books. Just put it in the curriculum. Come on, high schools. Yeah, and I think, I don't know. I feel like at some point we need to have, like, an episode just talking about, like, our high school reading experiences and going through the books we read. Because I was just thinking, and I was thinking about, you were talking about how this just kind of paints this picture of, like, total misery. And I was thinking about how many books I got in high school that were, like, the only discussion of that topic in high school. And they were just, like, miserable Mm, (laughs) um that's a fair point yeah and thinking about how obviously those books can have a purpose but it's not if you're if you're mandating that students read this they're not gonna get anything out of the book if it's if they're like i have to read this and it's also making me (laughs) just totally completely sad (laughs) If, if, you know, we pick it up for fun, it's a different experience. Like, we if we know what we're getting for into. Fun. We've chosen this. <laughs> I don't know. I remember there's probably some books I would have enjoyed a lot more if I hadn't been forced to read it and then had to pick it up, you know, at a time I didn't want to read that kind of thing. And there wasn't any, like, lightness in the curriculum. So it was just book after book of, like, me being sad about life on this planet. Mm. And that... The antidote to that is definitely having books that talk about difficult topics, but trying to find books like jazz, but not jazz because (laughs) the reasons that Casey already said, that have some joy in them. So you can see both the difficult things, but also like not have your student be miserable the whole time. I mean, like To Kill a Mockingbird is a good example and is why it's a good high school book. You get the lovely times with Scout being a child, and you also get all of the horribleness of the way that right, white racism like manifests. Yeah. For that reason, I would agree. I, I don't think this book is correct for high schoolers. I am sure that at least one Toni Morrison book would be. And she's written many books, so you, you can find the right one for your curriculum. All you clearly, our entire audience is just high school teachers because they're just <laughs> clamoring for this podcast. But uh, I guess to close on a more positive note, like I'm glad I revisited this book because I think there's a lot of, especially in this current climate, there's a lot in this book that's really powerful and really resonates in an impactful way. And it's definitely worth the time to read it. Just go in knowing that it's it's a bleak book and prepare yourself for that. I think if you do, if you come in with that right mindset, like you'll get a lot about out of this book. And I suppose I should have done more for that, of that for you, Morgan, because <laughs> perhaps this is an example of what happens when you don't do that. You come in. Uh, it's it's a I bit should've... more mixed. I should have checked trigger warnings and known to do that before I read because I have read Toni Morrison before and know the plots of some other Toni Morrison books. 
and I should have known to check. So, truly, my bad as well. I must take responsibility for my own reading experience. But <laughs> I am, in the end, glad that I read this. If for no other reason, then I would aspire to read all of Toni Morrison's books, and I, it would be nice to like be able to think through her fiction writing journey from this to whatever her last book was. So I too am pleased. And it also, yes, had moments I really enjoyed and loved and was saying a lot of really important things. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Read this book. but uh... And don't kill animals. <laughs> All right. Well, we we're now bookless. We're we we have no direction. So I mean, we're gonna pick a book. By the time you listen to this episode, <laughs> we will will have already picked a book and read it, and probably recorded it, uh, recorded a podcast about it. But send in your recommendations anyway. <laughs> We and it could be a future podcast. Yeah, yeah. Now that only one of us has to have read it, mm-hmm. there's so many more possibilities. And I mean, I think maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think A Wrinkle in Time was a listener suggestion. Oh. Yeah. Yay. So it's happened. I guess you're not going to listen to Wrinkle in Time until much later. Spoilers. Whoops. <laughs> But the problem is, is that we've recorded these all out of order. It's we recorded based on basically when we could get the books from the library and things like that. <laughs> the point is, send in your recommendations. And if you ever buy books, buy them from our bookshop affiliate link. You can find it Woo! on the website. And yada. And also stuff. give us five stars on iTunes. And leave reviews. We're, we're watching. We, we know who, where you live. We don't. Okay. You, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before this gets any more out of hand, let's just leave. So until next time. Thank you for listening. Hasta la vista. Bye bye.